Thank you for joining us on Warrior Women Speak. I'm Judge Rosemary Aquilina, author of Just Watch Me, and I'm joined with my co-host, Sherry Botwin, LCSW, social worker and trauma specialist and author of Thriving After Trauma, Stories of Living and Healing. We have created this podcast for your enjoyment and so that we all can talk about our issues and learn together about how to deal with trauma and those things that spring up in our everyday life. Please join us for every episode and let us know what you want to talk about. Now for the show. Bill Cosby walks free. How did that happen? So many people have asked me that, and I know that Sherry has been asked that as well, and especially from a different point of view, how is it affecting the victims? But let's start with the legal side, because that's what's caused the pain now to the victims. And ultimately, there is the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And there was a promise by Castor to Cosby if you testify in the civil case, we will not prosecute you. And then of course they did prosecute. There was a finding of guilt. There then was an appeal. So why did he walk free? Well, first of all, any plea deal in writing or oral that is relied upon, we have to look at once the defendant relies on that, did he believe it? Did he have reason to believe it? What actions did he take? And then if he relied on it, we can't renege on the deal. We can't pull it back and say, ha ha, fooled you. And now you're going to prison. And essentially the nuts and bolts of it, very short, very brief. That's what happened. Now, what should have happened, and we can talk a lot about this, Sherry, but in my courtroom, when someone pleads, I say, did anyone force, threaten, or coerce you or promise you anything other than the plea agreement? When they place the plea agreement on the record, I ask, is this full, fair, accurate, and complete? I also tell the defendant, do you understand that once you have entered into this or by entering into it and you fail to tell me that someone forced, threatened, coerced you or promised you something that's not on the record today, you cannot come back here and say, oh, but judge, there was another promise, making it not my own decision to plead. And I based my decision on X, Y, or Z. And I tell them, was there anything? And they say, no. If they hesitate, I say, would you like a moment with your lawyer? Is there something you need to tell me? Now, obviously that didn't happen here. The other thing I do, and not all judges do it. And I think it's a really good practice. I think we need to fix in the law so that everything is in writing like a contract. So we know exactly what the deal is and it's open and can be reviewed by the victims. I have no idea whether the victims were told about this or even asked about this plea deal and, and it was oral. So who knows? And what I do is every single morsel, the tiniest of agreements is in writing on a plea deal form. The defendant signs it, his lawyer signs it. The prosecutor signs it and I sign it. So we've all signed it. So a defendant can't say, well, I didn't know. And there was another deal that is all encompassing. I inquire three, four or five different ways, depending on the case. And if somebody hesitates, I say, go back and talk to your lawyer, or we're going to do this another day. 
You have to have those safeguards in place. None of that, to my knowledge, happened. However, what did happen was Cosby testified in the civil case, and his words were used against him, violation of his Fifth Amendment rights. And when we do those kinds of agreements, we are looking at the issue in the favor of defendant because our Constitution is that important. And we cannot fool around with it. If we've made a promise, we cannot take it back. And he relied on it because he did exactly what that agreement was. That was the problem. So it wasn't with the judge. The, as judges, we're not part of that. And if we are, we must say on the record that we are and keep to our promise. So I don't blame the judge there. I blame the sloppy work of the prosecutors and the closed deal that they did ultimately, because I don't think the media knew about it or we would have all read about it. I strongly suspect, and I know that you have spoken to the victims, and I don't know if you've asked them this or if anybody has, did they know about it? Were they consulted? Now, a victim does not have to agree with the plea deal. They have to be consulted, though. And they're really curious about that. Do you know about that, Sherry? I actually, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, I don't think I know the answer. I don't think I know. I think when I sat in the trial, I remember this was something that came up, but it wasn't a big focus. It was something that came up in the pretrial hearings, but I don't remember how Andrea answered these questions, even if she was there for that part. I, I don't remember. I think the part that's the most confusing for me and maybe people who aren't really involved with the law is there's so much talk about you have to get it in writing, you have to get it in writing. The fact that this wasn't put in writing, that's the piece I think that is sort of like a head spinner because if there's no document saying this is something that he signed and here, here let, let us show you, that's where I think people are like, but he, it was a verbal agreement. So how does that make it, how does that hold if there's not a signature? A verbal agreement. You and I can agree that I buy your car for $5,000. Your next door neighbor can say, geez, you're selling it to Aquilina for $5,000. i will pay you seven. And you can say, okay, seven's good. But here I've gone to the bank. I've sold my car. I've gone to the bank at $5,000. It's in your name. I show up with it and I relied on it. Do I get the car or not? It's that reliance piece. Oral contracts are acceptable under certain conditions. You have to be able to prove it. There has to be a meeting of the minds. There was a meeting of the minds between Castor and Cosby. And that is the problem. The meeting of the minds makes it a valid contract. On top of there being um, consideration and there has to be, you know, Cosby testified, right? and Castor didn't um, proceed, and there were all of the elements of a valid contract. That's the problem. An oral contract, a verbal contract, is as effective as a written one. Not as clean, not as provable, but then you look at actions. And based on Cosby's actions, he had to be let go. And, not, you know, it's so sad for the victims. And we have, but we have to balance what happened in Cosby with, you know, what, what's going to happen now. First of all, we need to fix the broken legal system, and I'm going to advocate for that. But then we need to look at, this is, a, this is, when we make a promise, 
when there's a plea deal, when there's a sentencing, what we are doing, when there's a jury verdict, right, and a judge's sentence, those things, and a plea, those things are a guarantee to the victim of punishment for the crime. We promise the victim the defendant's going to be punished, and now we've pulled the rug out from under them. How can they trust the system? How fearful are they? I know you've talked to them. What's going on with the victims? Because that is just, it takes us back years. I mean, I think with the victims and anybody involved, family members, supporters, advocates, I think it's there's an element of shock and disbelief. How How is this happening now? It's been almost three years since he went to prison. How does all this happen? And I think, again, they're not necessarily expressing fear about him. I don't think many people feel afraid of him at this point. It's more they're afraid of the rage and anger and what in the world do they do with all that. I think that was the initial response. I think now that it's been been a little bit over a week, right? I think as we've gone through the last week and couple days, a lot of them have been talking with each other. A lot of people, again, advocates and supporters, we've all been having conversations about sort of like the good that will end up coming out of this. You know, that that awful saying, the silver linings, I think that this is a problem in the legal system. And it's not just about Cosby. There's so many people everyday people who are being assaulted by everyday people who don't have the gazillions of money that that Cosby had to get this far to be able to do what he's been able to do we i think that we're at a point now where we want to implement change and we want to make sure this can never happen again i don't feel like and again i think i'm in a different spot now now that it's been 8 or 9 days i don't feel like what happens and him being set free lets him off the hook. I don't think that that is the case. He's still guilty. We know he's still guilty, right? Um, and the victims, they might not be fearful of him personally, but I suspect there are a few victims who are thinking, who will he offend next? He's out. He's not cured. Look what he did to all of us. Who is his next victim? And that must be unsettling for them. You know, I think, again, what they're focusing on is they, when we talk, we talk a lot about his vulnerability and his fragility at this point. When you see him, like when we watched images of him getting out of the car, walking up to his front door, he's got people on both sides of him holding him up, and he's got people around him. And I think at this point, it's not so much who is he going to hurt next, it's more all the other people in this world who don't even have the opportunity to go to a police or or to report the crime because we've got the statute of limitations still in place. And I think it's more just on a whole, thinking about predators, serial rapists, and that there are so many that are walking free. He's walking free, but that's after he was in prison for almost three years. So... I don't think, and and I hear what you're saying too, but I think one of the things that I know is even during the trial, and I talked to some of the women about this also, his, his, while he was so smug and he, he gives off this sense of power, he looked 
he looks and looks pathetic. I think the one good thing that has come out of this is that even though he's walking around doing whatever the hell he wants at this point, I don't think it's changed people's minds. I think there are a lot of people in this world who will have their eyes and ears on every step that he takes. I think the the scrutiny and the image that he had while he's trying to reclaim his image of before, I think that that opportunity, that, that ship has sailed. So I think that when we talk about it, we have different perspectives on it. I think if he were younger or he never went to prison, I think people would be more afraid of him, but he doesn't present he doesn't present as somebody at this point who's going to be able to have that much power because there's so many people who know who this man really is. Yeah, I, I think what we've done is that the fallout's going to be more that we've eroded the victim's confidence in the legal system and those who are yet to come forward uh, to report and to testify and the victim's I think after Cosby will feel like they have to choose, and they do have a right to both a civil and a criminal trial, but based on this, running through their minds now will be the added stress of, should I testify? What if they don't um, get convicted? And do I have to choose between a civil and a criminal case? Do I only get one? So this case may very well have a chilling effect on many, many other cases. And I'll tell you from a restitution standpoint, restitution is money that will make the victim whole. I always say, in my courtroom at least, that restitution is allowing every victim who's been affected testify, because that may very well be the only time the defendant is told by the victim, you hurt me. But we normally think about restitution as money. And the issue, as I see it as a just a citizen and as a lawyer and a judge is when you have a judgment against you in civil court, oftentimes defendants will file bankruptcy and negate whatever judgment, whether it's a dollar or a hundred billion dollars, it doesn't matter. They can file bankruptcy. And in a criminal court, however, when I have someone on probation or parole, as the case may be, they're ordered to pay back the restitution. That is not forgiven in bankruptcy. So, you know, money doesn't fix the person who's been assaulted, but it certainly helps them get treatment, pay for therapy, um, you know, pay for all those problems that they have, the triggers that they have. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, when I think about victims and I think about people who are trying to decide, do I come forward? Do I report this? One of the issues that a lot of the women and I have been talking about, and I've been talking with colleagues about this too. Earlier this week, I sat down with two colleagues who are also survivors, and we were saying how we're in our 50s. We've been, we confronted, we spoke 20-something years ago. We're thinking more about the people who were assaulted last week or last month or last year, more like the new, newer victims and they're the ones that we really want to reach because I think somebody who's been through this process and again many people don't litigate that's certainly not the only option but I think when you've had more time to own your truth and speak about it and get help our perspective is different than maybe somebody who's just been just went through this a week ago or a year ago so that's my main 
concerned and what I'm trying to figure out how to reach those people, how to say to those people, let's look at what happened and let's talk about what do you need? What do you need to feel that you've gotten justice? And one of the conversations I was having earlier this week with a couple of therapists was that reporting the crime is one way, but it's not the only way. And that's something that I think we're trying to focus on this week too, to say, there's again, there are so many people who don't even get their day in court. They try, they go and they report the crime and they're told we don't have, you don't have enough evidence or it's too late. Your statute of limitations in this state, it's expired. So you're not going to be able to have that opportunity. So we also want to be clear. We don't want to be so black and white about it, right? Now that Cosby's out, that doesn't mean like you were saying before, that doesn't mean that he, he, in the end, was victorious. I know I saw images of him, and this made me want to puke, actually, but I saw images of him last week with his hands in the air, like, as if he's victorious. And I say to myself, it's a helpful image to look at because you know what it does? It reminds me of just how in denial and sick this man is to think, to think that we're going to look at that image and think, oh, well, now he's been set free. He's been, he was wronged and now it's been fixed. That's not what it looks like. It's an image that reminds me and reminds many of us just how the pathology of somebody who commits these type of crimes, how deep rooted and how hurt of a person he actually is. Yeah, really sad. And you know, justice is not served by mistakes in the law. Justice is about making, as you are talking about this, justice is about making victims feel they are heard, valued, believed, powerful, victorious, and getting them into court if they're strong enough, if they choose, and to let them know that we're not going to make mistakes so that a Cosby case doesn't happen again. But it's, you know, the law, we call it the practice of law because we do all make mistakes. And as lawyers and judges, we recognize those mistakes are there. Mm-hmm. But everybody needs to understand that every mistake like this that we make doesn't just affect those victims in the Cosby case. It now affects all of those, you know, half the world has been victimized by some kind of domestic violence, Right. And now it affects all of those who've been assaulted in some way and those yet to come. And it's just, it's just such a sad moment. You know, one of the things that I really admire about the women, my, what I was thinking about an hour or two after I saw the news, I thought, oh my gosh, Janice and Heidi and... Lisa, all these, and Andrea, I think, oh my gosh, they're going to be devastated. They're going to feel like the rug was ripped out from underneath them. They put their, they put their lives on the line when they decided to, to go forward. And then not only did they come forward, but there were 19 potential witnesses that could have testified. And I think to myself, so the five or six that did what they had to go through. I sat in that courtroom. I listened to the cross-examination and I thought what they went through. And now this, this is what I love about them. They didn't, they didn't say that. They weren't saying we should have never done that. 
what a waste of time. This is where I got like, you know, sort of like that, that fire that comes out of me or that, that, that sense of hope and freedom. I was so, I don't want to say proud because that's not the right word, but impressed with how quickly they got the news and they could talk on air or talk behind the scenes about this doesn't change a damn thing. All, all the testimony, I was talking to Janice one of the days and all the testimony that they gave, I can still go and read it. It's yeah. not like, well, now that he's not in prison anymore, that all went away. That for me was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what you're, you're raising your saying. hand. Yeah, no, I, I just I'm so agree with you because I'm so excited because you know what you're saying is what I do in my courtroom every day, which is allowing the victim to speak, allowing them to testify, allowing them to, at the end of the trial during sentencing, say, you damn it, you hurt me, and I'm mad. And those women who faced Cosby, their worst nightmare, the, what, the most beloved what father figure on television ever in the history of the world, right? And they were able to say, damn you, you hurt me. I think that catapulted their healing. That's, I think, what you're saying. And you see it every day when you work with all of the trauma victims that you have. And I think um, they're right. You know, they faced him. They've lived. They're healing. And so whether he's in or out, they've put him in the, in the dark hole in their brain where he belongs. And they are free. They're in the light. And I think that the priority of victims should not be the should be the norm. Priority of victims should be the norm, not the exception. And that's really when when you give voice to victims, they are the priority. That should be the norm. That should be the kind of patient you are dealing with. That should be what happens in every courtroom, and it should never be the exception. Because look at what you're telling me. These women who were so traumatized by him are still doing fine. I mean, if anything, they're doing better now than they were three weeks ago or two weeks ago because they're so freaking pissed off. Yeah. And they're going to use that energy and they're going to fight for more change. I mean, one of the things I'm thinking about as you're talking to, when you talk about the victim and that we need to look out for the victim, this was one of the reasons why I wanted to be at the trial because I wanted to understand what does a what does a victim or survivor experience when they're sitting in a box talking to their 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 predator sitting in the room his lawyers are sitting in the room the witnesses were not allowed to have any family members in the courtroom they had advocates assigned to them and they were amazing I have to say the advocates in the state of Pennsylvania we I think we're echoing. I'm not sure why, but that 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 part was amazing. But I think to be able to, I don't know if you I don't know if you can hear that echo. Can you hear that echo? Okay, maybe it's just on my end. Let me just do that. I think we need to figure out how to make it safer for them to be able to sit in that box and recount what happened to them. That's one of the things that drives me the most crazy. Is that they went through all that. And again, like I'm saying to you, they're not regretting that. They're not saying, now we shouldn't have done that. But we need to figure out how to make it safer for them. If they're going to get up and speak in a courtroom, they shouldn't have to sit in that box by themselves without a family member. That Talk about re-traumatizing, reactivating the trauma. That, that's, a, that's a piece that I have a hard time sitting with. 
Yeah. So as you're talking, I, before I answer that question, I want to ask you, because it's something I do on a daily basis, and when I hear from anybody in the courtroom who, it could be a defendant, it could be their mother, it could be the victim, the victim's mother, whoever, when I hear the words, I also feel them. What was it like sitting in that courtroom and not just seeing those women testify and hearing their words, but feeling that pain? What was that like for you? I think that was the hardest part because the, the pain was so visceral and that feeling of wanting to be able to reach out and just give them a hug or express my sympathy or my concern, you can't do that when you're sitting in the courtroom. So one of the things that we did, a lot of us when we sat there, we worked very hard to communicate through our bodies and through our eyes how how much we were thinking about them. I mean, one of the things that you can do, obviously, is when you're not sitting in a courtroom, even though the witnesses aren't really able to talk about the trial, I can send them a message and say whatever I want. I can send them a message and say, you know, you have so much courage and make sure you take really good care of yourself. That was something that the advocates were doing and that a lot of us that were sitting in the room being a witness to their pain, we were able to do that. And once the trial ended, we could talk between each other and ourselves about how do you heal from that part of the process because that's a whole nother piece of healing. Once you've exposed yourself to the public, you need to figure out how to manage with not just what happened to you, but now everybody knows. Yeah. So you asked really what can we do? First of all, the defendant has a right to face their accuser and to hear from all the witnesses and all of that. I mean, this is always a balancing of rights, and not every defendant is guilty. Obviously, we know Cosby was, and so and that's what we're talking about. But we have to look at the Constitution and honor the rights from both sides. But when we have someone testifying, it doesn't matter their age, whether they're six years old or 66 or 96. It doesn't really matter. There are some common issues that we have. They should be able to have a victim's advocate there, but they also should be able to have a parent, a loved one, someone they trust. It could even be their therapist. I have therapists who show up, um, but they should be given priority seating and visually be able to see them because they shouldn't be at the back of the courtroom. They should be a front row person so that when the witness is talking, when the victim's talking, they can look to their support person, to their mother, to their therapist. They don't have to look at defendant when they're talking about the most intimate things that have ever happened to them. Also, there should be support animals, just paid for by our tax dollars, and it should be the norm in every courtroom. And here's a problem in Michigan, and I don't know the other states, but I think it's a problem in, in a number of different states, in Michigan, a child can have a support animal, but it was recently ruled, and they're trying to fix it, but I don't think they fixed it yet, that an adult cannot have a support animal for, you know, for the trauma. I'm talking about trauma support. I'm not talking about a seeing eye dog or something else, but a support animal for the trauma from the event. Um, 
because it would give the jury the feeling that they should have sympathy for this victim and it would go against the defendant. If that isn't the biggest pile of hooey I have ever seen, I don't know what is. Because when you're telling a difficult story, you know, even the doctor, the dentist, whatever, they give us those squeezy balls, you know, there's things that we can do to make people calm enough to tell the truth. The biggest truth maker is cross-examination. It's not whether or not the person has a dog. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about what happens when somebody walks out of the courtroom when they finish testifying and then they're escorted out. And one of the things that I did like about the trial was that when we got to sentencing and people had the opportunity to give a victim impact statement, Andrea's whole family sat there when she sat in the box and she read her story. She had her advocates. She had such amazing advocates. They were amazing. She had her mom, her dad, her sister holding hands in the front row of the courtroom. She had the district attorney and the assistant district attorney, and you could feel people's eyes. You could feel the support and the love from the, at least from the left side of the courtroom, not so much from the right side where Cosby was sitting. And I think that that was, that was a moment I think that was very healing. The other, and I think we've talked about this, the other witnesses did not have an opportunity to sit in the box and read their victim impact statement. The judge did not allow that, which again, we've talked about and have a ton of feelings about that. He He did allow them to write something. And what the judge did was he read, he read what some of them wrote, but that's not the same thing. One of the things I have to say though, when I think about where we are, it's 2021, hashtag, me too. It's about three or four years old now. Here's here's another sort of like silver lining. If this had happened 10 years ago, if Cosby had been let out 10 years ago and the world was reacting, the amount of openness and the amount of dialogue that's going on as a result of his being released would not have been the same. There are survivors around the country who are holding vigils. I know here in Philadelphia, by the time this airs, it will have already happened. But here in Philadelphia Philadelphia, and also in Chicago, some of the Cosby women are gathering and the advocates, and I'm planning to attend, to hold vigils. And I think when I, when I heard about that forming, that vigil forming, I thought, if this were 10 years ago, first of all, the amount of media coverage that these survivors have gotten, it wouldn't have even been. I think we're in a place now where we're so much less tolerant of this kind of crap. So in terms of the healing and the movement, because this was the question that a lot of reporters asked me, and and it sort of drove me nuts. I, I, I thought it was a great question, but it drove me nuts. Do you think that Cosby being let out of prison, do you think that will be a setback for hashtag me too in the movement? I said, hells to the freaking no. Hells no. Maybe 15 minutes after I read about it, I thought, oh, this isn't going to be good. But within an hour or two after understanding what was happening, I thought, this is going to propel the movement. It's going to reignite the movement. It's going to make people want to do more. And there's so much healing that is taking place even from the day he was released to today. There's been so many Facebook Lives and articles and different different journalists are covering different aspects of the story. And yes, there's a tension on 
what Cosby ate for dinner the next day or he's in Massachusetts with his wife. There's been a little bit of coverage, but there's been a lot more coverage on how are these women and how is the Constant family and what are survivors thinking? That is what I'm focusing on because to me, that's, that's where the victory stands. I agree with you. I think there will be some chilling effect, but I'm hoping that people like you and me and our colleagues and friends and circles uh, get wider and wider and wider. And I think what we ought to do is start not a Me Too. We already have Me Too. But I think it should be a We Too movement. And I think it should include the LGBTQ, I probably screwed up those letters, LGBTQ, let me get that. Don't forget about the plug. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but I think it should include everybody. It should be a We Too so that we partner together with men and women and boys and girls and of all races, of all colors, um, of all religions, of all statuses, and of all sexual preferences. And we just stand together and say, we too, and let's fix the legal system. So when we're assaulted, when there's something that goes on, everybody's on the same page. We get to use the Constitution, but we also don't lose what's happened because of a technicality. And let me just tell you, Cosby's not the only one, and we all know that, who got out on a technicality. So why don't we study this? Why don't we fix it? Why don't we demand our legislature act now? Don't wait. There's right. very simple things. If I were a legislator, I could write a half a dozen laws tonight and have them in effect very shortly. They can suspend the rules. They can send a bill to committee, send the, suspend the rules, send it to the floor vote, send it to the other house. They can, when they want to, they can pass a bill in a week. Why is it taking this long? You said it's the year 2021. How much longer do we have to wait? I love that. That hashtag we too. absolutely love that. It's making me think, I'll tell you what the best moment of the week was for me. It wasn't when I was talking to survivors. It wasn't when I was talking to colleagues. It was when I was sitting at the pool one day talking to a neighbor who happens to be a very nice man. And again, anybody who's been raped or assaulted We know what it's like to think about, can I trust men? Are there good men out there? So I'm talking to this guy. He's got a daughter. He's in his late 60s. And we were talking about the Cosby stuff because, of course, people are asking me all kinds of questions. And he said something to me, and I can't remember exactly how he said it. I wish I could, but he basically said, imagine if that were your daughter. And he got all like watery in his eyes. And I thought that is the moment of the week for me, because what that shows me is somebody who doesn't have a history of trauma, who doesn't have a daughter that was raped, but can imagine or can picture as a father what that would be like if, if, that, if, if Andrea was his daughter or Janice was his sister. That was the moment of the week for me. Yeah, everybody has someone we love, and we don't want to see that person harmed. And that's where I'm saying, hashtag we too, we need to stand together. We need to recognize it, stand up, be the voice, and prioritize those who don't have a voice by standing up on their behalf and saying no more. And, you know, help the victims, speak up for them, speak up for those who can't speak. That's our job. That's my job in life, speaking for those who don't have a voice. That's your job in life. I think that the world has seen that. 
but I also know that there's so many more who could stand with us, and I'm hoping that Cosby is sending a message to them, get involved now, we too. And what, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about as we talk about the movement and the the work we still need to do is I just want to say for a second here, if you're triggered by this story, if you're noticing that you're having a setback with the PTSD, if you're having more flashbacks of your assault, one of the things I really want to make sure I say is stop looking at pictures of Cosby. Stop reading articles about Cosby and his his first week out of prison. Don't be looking at that stuff. Go If you're going to go online, read about the women who testified. Go get books about how you can take your injustice and turn it into justice for yourself and others. This is a week where people are so reactivated, and I think it's really important that we have a combination of thinking about what can we do, like you're talking about the legislation. This is something we can do. What else can we do? We need to take really good care of ourselves. This is one of those weeks where you really want to be, you don't really want to be on social media. You want to be talking with your therapist or your support group or women that you know who've been assaulted and you want to do really, really good self-care. This is one of those weeks where I think people are being put to the test because I think when you read about the Cosby story, you, you keep seeing pictures of him. One of the things that I made sure of this week, and I know that some of the women are also talking about this, they don't say his name. I forget how they referred to him, but they were on with Kate Snow the other day. That man that we shall no longer say his name, I don't remember how they say it. I wrote an article earlier this week. I refused to put a picture of Cosby. What I did was I grabbed a picture from New York Magazine of all the women. That was my cover. I don't want to look at his face. I want to look at the people who are fighting for their life and who are advocating for change. So I feel very strongly about that. We're going to continue to see images of him probably for the next several weeks. He's going to release a documentary. He's going to start talking to the media because that's what he's going to do. We need to think about, do we really want to sit and listen to him being interviewed by so-and-so news? No, I am not interested in the least bit, unless you're really interested in studying the pathology of a predator. I would not recommend that. And I would say, don't focus on that. Focus on the people that are helping you and the people who are working for change. That's what you need to focus on. And take really, really good care of yourself. Don't don't inundate yourself with messages that leave you feeling shame and leave you feeling disbelief because that's going to just put you right back in the spot you were when this first happened to you. And I couldn't agree with you more. And I think for those people who live with, are friends with, love anyone who's been a victim and who's being triggered now by Cosby or it upsets them in any way, I would agree, do those things, you know, turn off the news, whatever. But I think that most important to get there is to remain calm, to believe that this is upsetting them and not ask the why are you upset about this? You know, why shames and blames? Make sure that you're saying, how can I help? What would you like me to know? What is upsetting you about this? Those kinds of things. And that gives them, it starts to give them back their control and allow them to express the rage, the anger, let them scream or cry, be angry with you, all of those things. And then 
assure them that they're going to be fine and help them make a list, as you're suggesting, of what are the things they can do, and you could join in with them to change the world, to change how they're feeling, to change this situation, to make the laws safer, to make the world better, to protect victims, to give them voice. And if we make them the priority and make them feel safe and help them to say, this is what we're going to do to make this situation better, it really does, as you're suggesting, which I think is right on, um, takes away the focus from him and says, you know, we're going to fight back. We are stronger. We are more than, not less than because of this. And we're going to show you, you know, just watch me. We're going to do this. And I think that's a really powerful message to those people who may be struggling. And I think there's a lot. Keeping them busy and off of the papers and away from him is really the right thing to do. And maybe again, think about this as we're, as we're getting ready to end. Think about this. What are some ways that you can honor that part of you that felt hurt or felt betrayed or felt unnoticed? The idea of the vigil, I mean, it's obviously not something everyone is going to do, but there's different ways that you can honor yourself and you can do it with yourself or you can do it in the company of others. I feel like that could be very helpful. And it's also a way to not be, not be by yourself and whatever thoughts and feelings that you're having, because the problem with that is once you get into your head and you're with yourself, sometimes that can activate the shame. As we wrap up, everyone, it is time to raise your voice, time to shout out, time to work with your judges and legislators and therapists. Let's figure out where the problems are and let's not sweep them under the crunchy rug. Let's lift the rug up, own it and fix it. And you know what? I think if we keep having the conversations that we are having and that people across the world are having over the last nine days, I see a lot of hope and I see a lot of I, I see a lot of change in the future. I hope so. And the perception that victims' rights don't matter needs to just be off the table. And we need to all understand that victims' rights, absolutely front of the line, they matter, we care, and we're going to change any bad perception in this area so that both sides have a fair trial, a fair sentencing. And whatever happens, you know, that's for the justice system, but we're going to get help for people. And we are going to make sure that those people who are found guilty, it sticks. And those people who are not guilty, well, they can walk. But we need to have a, a fair uh, justice system where these kind of mistakes are not made. So this was such an important conversation. And Sherry, thank you for um, being at the Cosby trial, for your insight, for being there for those survivors. I, I'm sure they appreciate you very much. And we are going to be taking a break until September. It will be nice to be able to sort of focus on some of the other things that we're doing, but I know that we'll also miss coming together and having these conversations. And one of the things I was thinking about when I was thinking about that we're taking this break, we have done some really amazing shows. And if there's people out there that missed any of the episodes or want to go back and listen to any of them again, I think, again, when you talk about trauma and you talk about sexual assault, there's so many things that we're trying to understand and work through that there's lessons in all of the conversations that we've had. I know that when I know that when I go back and listen sometimes to some of the shows, there's things that I learn that I didn't think about when I listened to the show for the first or second time. So I'm hoping people will be able to 
enjoy our archive library because that will not go anywhere. And I just want to give you a plug, Sherry, because there's so many people who still say, I can't go to therapy. Mm -hmm. And you've all heard Sherry. She doesn't seem scary, does she? She is a great listener. She has great advice. And you need to see a trauma specialist, a trauma therapy um, trained therapist, okay? Because they're not all equal. Sherry is rather unique. I don't know if you'll find another Sherry, but you should try if you are in any kind of trauma, if you're not feeling like yourself, find a, a Sherry in your neighborhood. There is one, there's dozens of them. If you don't like the first one, go find a second or a third one until you find someone you can talk to. It is that important. And there is strength in that, not stigma, but strength in asking for help and saying, I need someone to talk to. And Sherry and all of her colleagues around the world, they're your secret keeper. So find a secret keeper and tell your secrets. What a wonderful place to end. And we look forward to seeing you when we come back in September. Happy summer. Thank you so much for joining us today on Warrior Women Speak. It is truly an honor to have conversations that are difficult to have, but that we need to have. Judge Aquilina and myself are so excited to announce that we are now doing speaking engagements in addition to our podcast. To learn more, you can email us directly at warriorwomenspeak at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen if you are enjoying what you're hearing. Until next time.